Both of our scripture readings this morning were penned by authors writing to communities that were struggling to live faithfully. The passage that Rich read from Sirach was around 180 BCE by a man known as Ben Sirach. He intended for his work to be a comprehensive authoritative reference wherein one could find faithful guidance and instruction for every one of life's circumstances. While being a well-traveled man, he would have witnessed the decline in fervor that had overtaken many of his fellow Jews. And being an observant Jew himself, he would have been greatly troubled by this decline. And the passage that I am about to read from 1 Corinthians is one of Paul's letters, also written to a community that he was concerned about. He was hearing about the discord in the newly formed church in Corinth, which included boasting, haughtiness, thoughtlessness, and other inconsiderate behavior. Well, apparently segments of the community would even on occasion try to one-up the other, claiming their wisdom or their elegance of speech or power that resulted from wealth made them superior to others. The letter was an attempt to remind them how to exemplify a proper life according to the gospel and against which Paul could help them discern a more wholesome communal life. And so Paul writes to remind them that Christ's love is above all else and affirms a unity that can honor their diversity. A reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And so, brothers and sisters, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for solid food. Even now you are still not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For as long as there is jealousy and quarreling among you, you are not of the flesh. Are you not of the flesh? and behaving according to human inclinations? For when one says, I belong to Paul, and another says, I belong to Apollos, are you not merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to you. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. The one who plants and the one who waters have common purpose, and each will receive wages according to the labor of each. For we are God's servants, working together. You are God's field, God's building. May God continue to bless our understanding of this sacred text. Consider this time frame for a moment. In 180 BCE, Ben Syra observes his fellow Jews losing sight of God's commandments and shares his wisdom. If you choose, you can keep the commandment. To act faithful is your choice. Before each of you is life or death. God has given you free will, so stretch out your hand and choose. But don't be mistaken. Great is the wisdom of the Lord, and he has not commanded anyone to be wicked. I wonder, 
if anyone listened to him. Now fast forward to 50 CE, some 20 years after Jesus' crucifixion, and Paul arrives in Corinth to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus. A mere 20 years after Christ's death, the people of Corinth discover how very hard it is to actually live in community the way that Christ would want them to live in community. They're fighting among themselves about who is right, who is more powerful, who is smarter. Some have pledged their allegiance to Apollo, others to Paul. The problem with the early church was not their lack of desire to grow in divine wisdom. The problem was their seeking the wrong kind of wisdom from the wrong sources. So Paul has to remind them that their allegiance to anything other than God is worthless. For we are all God's servants working together to build God's kingdom, living a life that looks like Jesus. I wonder if anyone listened to Paul's words of wisdom. Now fast forward to the 1960s, the height of the civil rights movement in the United States. The great Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King proclaimed these words to a country in turmoil, a country who often prides itself on being founded on Christian principles. An individual has not started living until he can rise above the narrow confines of his individualistic concerns to the broader concerns of all humanity. If any earthly institution or custom conflicts with God's will, it is your Christian duty to oppose it. You must never allow the transitory demands of man-made institutions to take precedence over the eternal demands of Almighty God. Man must evolve for all human conflict a method which rejects, re re which rejects revenge, aggression, and retaliation. The foundation of such a method is love. There is a final reason, Dr. King said, that I think Jesus says, love your enemies. It is this, love has within it a redemptive power. There is the power there that eventually transforms individuals. Just keep being friendly. Just keep loving them, and they won't be able to stand it for very long. Oh, they may react in many ways in the beginning. They may react with guilt, and sometimes they'll hate you a little more at that transition period, but just keep loving them. And by the power of your love, they will break down under the load of love. That's love, you see. It is redemptive. And this is why Jesus says love. There is something about hate that tears down and is destructive. Love is the only force capable of turning an enemy into a friend. So love your enemies. This kind of redemptive love played out in the real-life story of Anne Atwater, a black civil rights activist, and C.P. Ellis, the president of the KKK and an avowed white supremacist. Their story is told in the recent film, The Best of Enemies. Set in Durham, North Carolina in 1971, the film centers around a charrette, a charrette is a process in which all stakeholders attempt to resolve conflict and map solutions. 
To be successful, it requires an open mind, an open heart, and a lot of attentive listening. The story follows a two-week-long meeting, a charrette of ordinary citizens on the subject of school integration that brought together black and white members of that community. The charrette is co-chaired by Ann Atwater and C.P. Ellis, an unlikely partnership that few expected to succeed. Without giving too much away, this improbable pair ends up becoming lifelong friends. The story of these two characters is fascinating, and I'll admit it, I was skeptical throughout the film, wondering how much creative liberty the filmmakers took to conclude with such a fairy tale-like ending. But interviews with the real Ann Atwater and C.P. Ellis at the end of the film, along with a quick Google search, convinced me that their unlikely friendship was somehow remarkably true. Now this didn't mean they always agreed, as Ann Atwater confesses, but they were friends nonetheless, such good friends that Ann offered the eulogy at C.P.'s funeral. This story offers a lot to think about, doesn't it? But what struck me the most was the charrette process itself. It highlighted the hope for healing when people actually sit down and listen to one another. And when they listened to one another, when they engaged in respectful dialogue, they began to see one another's humanity, their vulnerabilities, their commonalities versus their differences. Now let's consider the current state of our nation. All of this wisdom that we have had handed down to us through the centuries, Ben, Syrah, the Apostle Paul, the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jesus Christ himself. How, O oh God, have we gotten here? Today, more than ever, we seem to have stopped listening to one another and retreated to our sides of self-righteousness. I'm for Apollos, I'm for Paul, has simply been replaced with I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat. I have never been more disappointed in our democracy and our inability to listen to one another, to treat one another across the aisles with basic human dignity and respect. Compromise and collaboration have become dirty words, and instead we pride ourselves on drawing lines in the stand and listening and insisting that our opinion is the only opinion and the right opinion. And so I repeat the words of Dr. King, an individual has not started living until he can rise above the narrow confines of his individualistic concerns to the broader concerns of all humanity. As a nation, we must find a healthier, more humane path forward. And we, all of us in this sanctuary, are more than just citizens. We are Christians which means we must forge a path forward grounded in love. And loving one another means we have got to start reaching across the divide and really listening to one another. You may be so deeply offended by what the other side has to say, but what if you actually listened to why they feel the way they do?
This listening doesn't mean you will ultimately come to agree with them, but by listening, you may come to understand why they believe what they believe. And maybe your kindness, your listening presence, will lead to their kindness and their ability to listen. Maybe your heart will soften, and maybe theirs will as well. C.P. Ellis, as president of the KKK, terrorized a black community. Anne Atwater, although she never seemed to show it, must have lived in fear every day for her and her friends and her family being killed by the KKK simply because of the color of her skin. If Anne Atwater can find a way to love her enemy, certainly we can try to listen with a more open mind and heart to those we don't necessarily agree with. It sounds exhausting, doesn't it? And in this age of rampant cynicism, it is easy to give up hope, isn't it? And I've been feeling a bit hopeless lately. But these inspiring words from Steve Allman this week regarding the power of our faith gave me the boost I needed. He wrote, in this climate of calculated cynicism designed to make us feel hopeless, we need to be fanatical optimists in our belief that we can become the subjects of history again, not just the objects. We need only look to the history of this country to see the proof of this fanatical optimism. Abolition, suffrage, the New Deal, civil rights, in each case, the outcome seemed impossible. And yet millions of Americans rose up and took action to make our union more perfect. It's not enough at this point for us to wait around for others to come to our rescue. We have to come to our own rescue. To do so, we must place our faith in the fragile belief that our own individual actions as citizens, and I would add as Christians, will matter. We have to shake off the modern American temptation to passively consume civic dysfunction as disposable entertainment. We've heard the wisdom of Ben Syrah. Will we choose life or death? We've heard the words of the Apostle Paul. We are God's servants called to look beyond our differences to the depths where Christ's love abides. Will we listen? We know Jesus' greatest commandment, love your enemy. Will we try? And Dr. King, who preached, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. Where will we stand? In my two cents, will we stand up and reach for the hands across the divide and then listen with all our hearts? And finally, from my newly found modern-day prophet, Steve Allman, make a plan. Take action, listen to your conscience, be a fanatical optimist. May we be so bold in our faith and not waste another moment ignoring the sacred wisdom of so many who have gone before us. Amen.